Hey everyone, and welcome to the Design of Everything. As always, I'm your host, Kyle Berseth, and this is a little extra design with astrophysicist Cameron Hummels. We discussed his greatest creative failure, what he learned from it, and his greatest creative success. My biggest creative failure. And what you've learned. And what I've <laughs> learned. No, I'm just trying to think. Okay. Well, I can think of something. Um, so a few years ago, I was involved in a piece of research, uh, totally unrelated to galaxy evolution, totally unrelated to all of the, the stuff that we've been talking about. It was mostly to understand something about the moon. Okay. So something nice and local that we can, <laughs> that everyone <laughs> understands has some right intuition. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I worked with this professor, his name was Arlen Krotz, and we we were looking at, there have been rumors about, well, rumors, there have been, there have been observations that people have claimed to have made since the invention of the telescope. So 400 years worth of observations made of the surface of the moon where people thought that they saw localized increases in brightness. So essentially like uh, short-lived on the order of minutes or hours. Mm -hmm. So essentially you're looking at the moon through a telescope and then all of a sudden you see a spot on the moon get brighter for 15 minutes or half an minutes. hour okay, or for an hour or something like that. Yeah, a fair amount of time. It gets brighter and then it gets fainter again. Or maybe it changes colors, something like that. These are called transient lunar phenomena and or TLPs. And a lot of people in the field of astronomy kind of view this as bullshit. They think that this is just user error. That mm-hmm. that uh, the people who report these are just on meth or something like that. Even though you know people have been reporting these for three hundred, four hundred. I'm years. telling you, the, the moon's getting brighter. It's getting brighter. There's <laughs> spots. There's spots, man. So he and I set out to try to. Uh, explain this to understand this but also to try and detect it in some sort of formal way and the way in which we did was the idea that we proposed was responsible is that there were essentially geysers of gas kicking out material from the interior of the moon through the lunar surface and in doing so it would essentially, you imagine Old Faithful or some yeah. geyser, right? Rather than it spewing water, it's just spewing air. It's like burping. Yeah. And in burping, it's kicking up a bunch of the sand and the soil surrounding that location of the geyser and up into kind of. More light. Exactly. It kicks okay. it. That's very good. It kicks it into some sort of dust cloud that yeah. then changes the reflectivity and and we see it as a as a brighter spot in that particular now how region. many how many uh ideas did you come up with before that before before you were like well that seems like the most logical one um a lot okay i mean this is one where where you're you're bouncing a bunch of ideas around. Oh, well, that doesn't fit this piece of evidence. Oh, that wouldn't produce something that's 30 minutes long or 15 minutes long. Oh, you know, th- this doesn't work or that Is doesn't work. Is this like work. a half hour brainstorming session or like a, uh, like a one month brainstorming session? This is, uh, this is, 
this is off and on for a month trying okay. to kind of come up with, I mean, initially it was just like brainstorm a few different ideas over the course of an hour or whatnot. But then, you know, you think about this a little bit. He thinks about this a little bit over the next few days. And then we come back and talk a little bit more. Eventually we kind of ironed out the idea for what's going on. And essentially what we were proposing is that, yeah, gas builds up in the interior where it's, where it's warmer and it slowly percolates upward uh, to the surface of the moon. But the problem is as it gets closer to the lunar surface, uh, particularly in shaded regions on the moon, the surface of the moon is really cold because there's virtually no atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So in the sunlight on the moon, it's very, very warm, like 200 degrees. And then in the shaded region, it's very cold, like negative 200 degrees. But, if you think about the content, like what kind of gas might be flowing out? Okay, so there might be, what are the common gases that we see coming out of the interiors of planets? One of them is water. What if water is slowly percolating up and all of a sudden it gets to a surface that's negative 200 degrees? What's going to happen to the water? Mm. It's going to freeze. Right. So you're going to have this like shell of ice that's keeping it from keeping that stuff sealed in that that gas sealed in and eventually as more gas and more gas comes out the pressure builds until it can finally shatter that that shell and and the gas essentially erupts in a big kind of gas explosion as it finally explodes on the surface and it kicks up all this dust and it turns out that the size scale and the time scale with which that cloud would would expand and you'd have this dust cloud is on par with uh, the size and the time scale of people seeing transient lunar phenomena. Oh, okay. Um, so we were really psyched about this, and we thought this was great. But nobody else cares. Nobody, <laughs> no, nobody, no, nobody else back. cares. Uh, we're, neither of us are planetary scientists, and so there was some some we just didn't register in the right circles. And what we were saying was kind of against the standard conception of what's going on on the moon uh, so that most of the people in the planetary science community didn't really pay attention or, mm -hmm. or so for instance, the way that you understand if your, if your results are being understood or making a big splash in a field is if they get cited when somebody else publishes a paper. So, you know, I'll write a paper and I'll say, Oh, like the work of so-and-so or like the, unlike the work of so-and-so, and I'll cite those papers. Mm -hmm. And those will go into citation statistics. So the paper from so-and-so might have 20 citations of people saying, oh, hey, look at this guy's work, or uh, 50 citations, or 100, or 1,000 citations. Yeah. Um, I think we have like eight citations. <laughs> no, nobody, nobody cares. Nobody, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody um, cares. So... I mean, do you think you landed on the correct? I think so. It seems consistent. Uh, I think it's a little too taboo maybe to talk about the things that we've been suggesting. But that's the thing about science is you should be able to say the taboo things. And people should, scientists are, as we talked about, so scientists are driven by fact. Yeah. They're driven by uh, evidence. And if you propose even if people don't like us or they don't feel that we're specialists because we're not in the field they should just look at the facts and does this match the facts and it seems to match the facts but i guess we didn't register in the right circles and nobody really cared so i don't know if that means that we're wrong i think it's 
a pretty good explanation. Uh, but creatively, was that a failure? No, I think we were creative and came up with something cool. But failure, it was because no one cares. And, you know, maybe in 30 years, people will find, oh, this paper, this was yeah, right. When they're building condos yeah. on the moon. That's right. They'll trying be like, to oh, sell hey, there's, there's this, some there's money this. involved. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> they're Once like, there's, uh, you know, this one uh, gets a little brighter. Why is that? Oh, yeah. well, there's gas shooting out there. That's right. There's water. That's right. There's, water. there's a water out. shell down here. No, we the, can't build on that. We can't the build footers on will be terrible. That's right. Right. So okay, so what would you say is your biggest creative success? Biggest creative success. I mean, it's so far in the weeds in terms of the details <laughs> of these scientific things. At least the moon thing was easy to to uh, talk about. Uh, okay, I'll lay into it here. The greatest creative success, I think, has been the proposed idea that. I don't know if you want to hear this. Yes, I okay, want to okay, hear about okay. your success. Okay. I just I just heard about how uh, no one failure. cared yeah, exactly. about your moon theory. So as I study galaxy evolution and I study uh, not just how galaxies evolve, but how this very low density gas around galaxies called the circumgalactic medium uh, evolves as well. Yeah, this is gonna be boring. Man. Oh, it's gonna be boring. I read, I read about oh, the, read the circumgalactic medium, and I clicked on some of your citations yeah. and the links, and I was like, I'm over my head yeah. here. The idea is that uh, the gas, the gas that's around galaxies, this circumgalactic medium, it's very low density. It's very hard to observe. It's very important because that gas eventually will funnel down onto the galaxy itself and be responsible for star formation, be responsible for all these things that essentially drive the evolution of the galaxy itself. Mm -hmm. But we don't really understand what's going on uh, in this gas because it's very difficult to observe. But the observations that we have for that gas, our simulations cannot reproduce those observations. And that's bad, right? Because if our if we run our simulations <laughs> and we can't reproduce what's going on uh, according to what people look at when they look through telescopes, no one's gonna care. No one's gonna care. <laughs> no one's gonna care. Well, they'll they'll care, but they'll just be like, "You guys are wrong. You you right. you're not you're not able to reproduce it. So your answers are bullshit. And why should we listen to what you say? We shouldn't give you money. We shouldn't give you a job. So on <laughs> and so forth. Which also is driving what why astronomers do what they do, so they can get jobs, uh, and. The what I'm proposing, and I think this is a success. It, I'm writing up the papers now, and people have been really forthcoming about thinking that this is interesting. Is that uh, if you are to increase the resolution in the halo, you're essentially to use to to allow in the simulation you allow gas to fragment into two separate components uh, by essentially putting more computational power in in these regions in the halo it essentially is able to match the observations much better mm -hmm. and this is resolving kind of this long-standing problem that we have uh, between simulations and observations yeah so that's really good and i think people are generally okay with this and receptive and responsive to this proposed theory but Again, only time will tell. So, it seems better than the moon deal. It seems <laughs> it, seems it seems like it could be better. It deal. seems like it could be better than than the moon, the moon problem. 
Well, I guess uh, we'll wait and see. We'll on wait that. and see. We'll wait and see. <laughs> the only other question I have yeah. is how has this whole giant galaxy view affected the way you approach your life? I would say, you know, these structures are enormous and they don't care about us doing what they're doing over the vast <coughs> volumes of space over the vast timescales associated with them. So, you know, it adds a little amount of humility to one's life and one's viewpoint on the universe that the things that I do in my life or that you do in your life, not to put down what you do in your life, but they Please. don't really matter that much in the grand scheme of things. So I think it in injects a level of humility. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Cool. Well, I think that's a great place to end. And yeah. uh, thank you for doing the podcast. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to. <laughs> I happy appreciate to talk, it. Man. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.